while we are giving and receiving of our tithes and our offerings, I want to encourage you to grab uh, your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 13. As a teacher, um, one of the things that uh, before we jumped into social studies or before we jumped into science or math or anything like that, we, we were taught, one of the, the little tools of the trade was we were told to have what was called an anticipatory set. Uh, and this anticipatory set was one of the things that uh, would get the kids' minds to start thinking about a potential problem and how they would solve it. And then you connect it to your lesson for the day. So here's my thing. Conflict. Conflict. Conflict plus gospel. Conflict plus sharing the gospel. For some of you, what does that stir inside of you? When you hear sharing the gospel and potential conflict, how, how does that make you feel? What, what goes on in your mind when you hear those words? Anything? Nervous? Might screw it all up, say the wrong thing? Anybody else? What's that? Not knowing the right answers? What's this going to do to our relationship? Mm. It's inevitable. Anyone else? not in the mood. <laughs> I'd really like to avoid it at all costs at this point. It will come. Anybody else? Scale 1 to 10. 10 being uber confident in sharing the gospel and love every opportunity to share the gospel. 1 being Dear Lord, I don't think that I have ever shared the gospel. How many would put themselves at a 10? And this is just honesty's sake. This is not going to put you on a pedestal in any way. Nine. Eight. Seven. You're a seven or eight? You'd like to think so? Six. Five. Four. Three. Two. One. Good. We, we've got almost every number covered. So this, this covers you all this morning. None of us have been a ten. I don't think anybody was even a nine. 
we were seven and eight was where we started touching in. The gospel inevitably brings conflict. The gospel that divides is, is the sermon for this morning. It, it, it's good news, and it divides. The, it, it happens. Even this morning, I, I was reading something from what's called the, the Aquila Report, and it, it's a website that kind of points out, you know, how do, how do Christians respond to, uh, to conflict and entering into conflict? And uh, this, this guy, his name's Larry, uh, he is a senior pastor, uh, actually he's retiring um, from a PCA church down in uh, Fleming Island, Florida. And uh, he's talking about Christians and how we, in culture, deal with conflict. And it happens to be around, and this sermon is not going to be about homosexuality, okay? But this is one of the topics that he's is being kind of bubbling to the surface now, especially with the Boy Scouts of America who are dealing with changing their potential structure and how they're dealing with the, the topic of homosexuality. It's, it's bubbling to the top, bubbling to the surface. The churches in the United States are, are inevitably, right now we are embroiled, some churches are embroiled in this battle of how do we deal with the topic of homosexuality. The, the reality is, even in the Reformed Church of America, it is a topic that we are dealing with. So the question is, how do we handle the gospel? And how do we handle conflict that is inevitable? This gentleman says that, uh, said this, what I'm hearing too is that Christians must be nice. However, being nice is not a Christian virtue. No more than being sweet is. Cinderella is nice. Winnie the Pooh is nice. However, Christians are righteous. Christians are gracious and kind, but Christians are contra mundum, which is against the world. By contra mundum, I'm not talking about shouting matches. I'm not talking about being rude or obnoxious. Anyone who knows me, this, this pastor, knows me personally, knows that I'm very shy and backward person. I'm basically a coward. Makes some of you feel good. This is the pastor sharing this. However, I still believe that God has equipped certain men to preach and lead his church. These men are spokesmen. They have the stage and the microphone. They have been honored by the church for their success and vision. Sometimes the adulation carries over into the secular culture, and this gives them a platform to be heard that many of us do not have. These men need our prayers. May they not forget that where much has been given, that much shall be required. Oftentimes, I watch them respond in public venues to the rampant growth of homosexuality, and they fall over themselves trying to be agreeable and sweet. After I listen to them, I'm not sure what they really said. One thing for sure, they were nice. In America, the unwritten law is that we must agree to disagree for the sake of peace. Truth is relative. What is true for you may not be true for me, and what is true for me may not be true for you. Let's just leave it there and go our merry ways. In a religiously pluralistic culture, everyone must be nice. 
maybe it's time to stop being so nice. How's that feel? (laughs) Who knows what God might do if our Christian leaders, and I'm going to say, if we, our Christian leaders spoke truth plainly in public, and some people were offended. There could be revival. If you remember from your study of church history, revivals do occur when the word of God is proclaimed with boldness and without fear. I am personally not willing to grant victory to the other side prematurely. If we are nice and do not speak the truth plainly, then we have been trodden down under the feet of men. Likewise, if we are nice and do not speak the truth plainly, then we have we may very well deny our Lord and Savior who bought us. Either way, it is a real problem. Nice guys never win. We finish last. So as we read the scripture this morning, knowing that the good news divides and that conflict is inevitable, let's read with those lenses and hear what the... Spirit of God has to say to us this morning. Follow with me, starting at verse 13, verse 42. And they went out. As they went out, the people begged these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after meeting, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out, how? Boldly saying, it is necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, I love it, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's continue on. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were, what? Divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it. 
and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. And may God multiply this on our hearts. Amen. I thought about this week my own fears. Why, why is it that I can identify with this pastor when he says that I'm basically powerless? What is it inside me that makes me be fearful of sharing the gospel? What is it that makes me even somewhat apathetic in my response to the grace that's been given to me that, that I don't just abundantly and graciously dispense the good news to people left and right that I come in contact with. There's a guy that I'm friends with. His name is Joshua Page, and he's a Facebook friend of mine. And this guy, everywhere that he goes, it does not matter if he's at the McDonald's. It doesn't matter if he's on the beach. It doesn't matter if he's in his workplace. Everywhere he goes, he is posting on his Facebook that people be praying for these people that he shared the gospel with. One time I read that he was, he was drinking coffee in a McDonald's and immediately he saw guys walking out of McDonald's into the parking place to their pickup and what did he do? He ran out. And he asked him the simple question. If you would die today, where would you be going? And he's confronting them with the gospel having no idea how they're going to respond, having even no relationship with them. But for us, sometimes it's even more scary because we're scared to share the gospel in our immediate circle. Isn't that true? And like Todd said, we're, we're scared of what's going to happen. We, we spend our whole lifetime building relational equity, hoping that sometime, just maybe sometime... We have enough relational equity that I can drop the bomb on them and no matter how they respond, they're still going to love me, right? But we keep on building this relational equity and we still never, I'm sorry, we rarely share the gospel. The reality is that even Jesus himself said that our confessing Christ to others would do this. This is Matthew 10. Do not think that I have come to bring to the earth. I have come to, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies shall be those within their own household. What do we do with this? If we take a stand for Jesus Christ, we will inevitably encounter opposition. And sometimes even from our own family. And some of you know that. You take a stand for the gospel, you share the gospel, and things get tense and things get awkward. It creates some kind of division. And hear me say this. While we should always, always be sensitive and gracious to each and every person, and being carefully not to be personally offensive, there, no matter what, there is inherently 
a divisive quality about the message we proclaim. The gospel is good news, but that good news divides. It always divides. And the question we've got to ask is, why would we even want to proclaim a message that is so inherently divisive? Because at our, at our hearts, we want to be peacemakers, right? We want to be peaceful. We want to live in unity. We want to just be lovey-dovey in our communities, in our workplace, in our family structure. We, we, just, we want everybody just to get along. Why can't we just get along? But the message that we believe in divides. There's a number of reasons. We know that the gospel is truth, right? The gospel is truth, and that those who do not respond to it in faith will ultimately face God's eternal judgment. But those who, those who do believe will be eternally saved. That is truth. But these are not the main reasons why we proclaim the gospel. The main reason that we should proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that God is glorified. God is honored. God is magnified when he saves So this morning, our main theme is this. Since God is glorified in the salvation of his elect. I know some of you all can go, okay, I don't like that word already. It's making me get a little squirmish. But we're going to see in this text that since God is glorified in the salvation of his elect, he wants us to boldly proclaim the gospel, even though it divides people. The glory of God is the supreme aim of everything. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, even proclaiming the gospel. So the glory of God in saving his elect should be our primary goal in proclaiming the gospel. The gl God's glory should be, and you've heard this last week and the week before, ultimately it is God's glory that we are concerned with. The glory of God in saving His elect, His people, should be our primary motive. God has created us all in His image to do what? To reflect His glory. And the fall of the human race has blocked that, that God's glory and from shining through us all. Sinful people do not glorify God. There's nothing God-glorifying or mirroring of God in a sinful person. But what man lost in the first creation, God recovered in a new creation of man. Therefore, salvation is critical in God being glorified. But let me get back to that squirmish word, elect. God has an elect people. The truth is often taught and plainly seen throughout all of the Bible, and yet many Christians dodge it. It's one of those strange doctrines that we go, why even, you're preaching about the gospel, Paul, I get that, preach away, but why preach about this doctrine of election? Because that's one that's going to divide us. I get the gospel. Amen. Election, now we're going to have some fights. 
And we may even have to consider whether Missio Dei is for us. But the reality is that Paul began his sermon in the synagogue in Poseidon by referring to God's choice of the fathers. Choice of the fathers in the nation of Israel. And later on in Acts, Paul was in Corinth and was afraid. And the Lord God appeared to him in a vision and told him to go on speaking, promising his protection. And then he added, for I have many people in that city. I have chosen people in there. And you need to preach the gospel. Keep on keeping on because I have many in that city who need to hear the gospel. And Paul had not seen these people get saved yet. He had no idea who they were. He wouldn't know them if they were right in front of him. But God had many in that city. They were God's elect. And he knew who they were and wanted Paul to keep on preaching so they would be saved. And we see God's election even in this text at the end of verse 48. Now look at it. And look carefully. And don't read into it. And when the Gentiles heard this they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed as many as were appointed to eternal life those who were appointed believed those who were appointed believed one of the commentators his name is ray stedman said this. Now, do not turn this around. The verse does not say, as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. Paul began his message by showing them that God is active, trying to reach out to men, and it is not men who are trying to find God. Ultimately, God appoints, and who he appoints respond by belief. It's not, I respond and God appoints. It has been preordained. And people believe they are simply responding to the, the activity, the prior activity of God who is already reaching out to them. God has elect people. The question is, is do we believe that if God has elect people in our lives, if God would say to you, listen, keep on preaching the gospel because I have many in the Lincoln Way area that have yet to be saved. Who I have preordained, that I have chosen my elect are still in the Lincoln Way area. And you need to keep on preaching because they have not heard the good news. What would be your response? Would you say, okay, Lord, I don't know who they are, but you tell me that there are many still who need to be have the gospel shared because they are your elect and they have not yet heard the gospel. Okay, I'm going to trust you even if it is divisive. Or do you say, you know what? Here's my prayer. Dear God, I love your gospel. I love what you've done to me. You have transformed me. You've taken me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of your son. Thank you so much. And God, my heart breaks for my my colleague, and God, it, this is terrible. Lord, would you bring somebody else to share the gospel with them? Because I don't want to offend them. I know, God, that my heart's not right, but isn't that kind of the tenure of our prayer? The tenor of our prayer is that, man, I, my heart breaks for them, but I really don't 
I really don't want to share the gospel with them because it's going to divide them. But what if we understood that that person may or may not be one of God's elect and we have the responsibility of sharing the gospel with that person? And it is ultimately up to God. It is ultimately up to God to change that person's heart. It's not up to me to be persuasive. It's not up to me to be fancy. It's not up to me to have the absolute right answer. It's up to God. Because God is working already. If that person is his, God is working already in that person's heart. God has elect people. Our choice to believe the gospel is not why God elected us, but he is electing us. His electing us is why we believe. God works in us in such a way that we cannot help but respond. And this doctrine of election, I believe, even though for some of us it makes us uncomfortable, it takes away my sense of my choosing and my ability to, to make any kind of decision, ultimately, you know what? Apart from God working in your heart, your only choice is death. Apart from God renewing in your heart, changing your heart, preparing your heart to respond to the gospel, your only response is no. So why is it important that we understand and believe this? Why, why, why did even Luke bring it up here? The author of Acts. Why did Luke bring it up? I think he does it because it's important to believe. Especially if we're going to engage in the work of evangelism. If you go out thinking that salvation depends all on man's choice and man's decision you have no guarantee you have no guarantee that anyone will decide to trust in christ if it is totally up to you to turn to god on your own there is no guarantee whatsoever that anybody will turn in fact the bible guarantees that no one will trust in christ because it is plainly states that no one seeks after God of their own free will. Romans 3.11. No one seeks after God. No one. None come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. We see that in John 6.44. It also says that Satan blinds our minds. 2 Corinthians 4.4. Uh, 4. And what does he do? He also holds them captive to do his will. 2 Timothy 2.26. And people are trying to convince to trust in Christ who are dead in their sins. On my own, I am unable to coax a dead body to life. It is absolutely impossible. We are all dead in our sins before Christ. But if God has an elect person whom he chose for salvation before the foundation of the earth, 
if he ordained that they would be saved by the proclamation, the sharing of the gospel, if he has the power to raise from the dead and impart repentance and saving faith in them, then you can share the gospel with confident faith that he will use the foolishness and your inadequacies to save some. Spurgeon wrote this in his book. And this is a great reminder for me. Oh, preacher, if you are about to stand up to see what you can do, it will be your wisdom to sit down speedily. It's a great reminder for if I am getting up here and just saying, man, I'm going to see what I can do today, see if I can save people, if I can share good enough of a message, a slick enough of a message that people will respond and their lives will be transformed, I just will sit down really quickly. But he goes on to say, but if you stand up to prove what your almighty Lord and Master can do through you, then you, then infinite possibilities lie around you. But here's the reality too, that God is glorified when the elect are saved. You can see the Gentiles' response here, and I love it. They began, what did they do? They started rejoicing and glorifying in the word of the Lord. A Gentile dance party broke out here. Paul rebuked the the Jews and just saying, listen, you guys have already determined that you, you are unworthy and that you're, you're not part of the elect. I get that. But ultimately, you know, Scripture says that um, you are to be a light to the Gentiles. And so now I am coming to the Gentiles to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's great news. And what did the Gentiles do? Woo-hoo-hoo! Party! What did they do? They rejoiced and they glorified in God. It wasn't just a like golf clap on the side. Oh, very nice. Very nice, Paul. They, they rejoiced and they glorified in God. And immediately there, there was like this hooray, this ha, this, this release that was going on because finally the good news is breaking into them. They've been caught down with the law. You do this, you do this, you do this. And now they're hearing the good news that frees people, that liberates them. And they're going... Praise be to God. I'm rejoicing. I'm glorifying God. Were they glorifying in Paul? Absolutely not. They were glorifying in the word of God. The good news has come. Thank God we are liberated. We got freedom. There was something about Psalm 34 on their lips. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. That's what we do when we come together. Come. Rejoice with me. Come on, body of Christ. Let's let's rejoice together for he has done something amazing in our lives even this week. God is glorified when his elect are saved because it does something life-altering, earth-shattering. Contra mundum. God's glory is the beauty of his perfect attributes all put together. And that glory shines supremely at the cross where his perfect love and his justice meet together in this exploding thing where God's love in saving and electing and choosing 
and his justice meets at the same time, at the same spot, and people are changed by the cross, by the sacrifice of Christ, and God is glorified in that because hearts of stone that no longer, that did not worship him, are now alive in Christ, and they glorify him. We glory in his salvation, and we are filled with joy. Or, I'm sorry, we are to be filled with joy. All of us are to be filled with joy. We should want others to glorify him. Is it true with you? Are you so filled with joy with what Jesus has done in your life that you cannot help but to express what Jesus has done for you and to hold out the promises of life in Christ. Listen, this, is tr- this happened to me. I was dead, I, but now I'm alive, and I cannot help but share this good news, hoping that they too will glorify God, but also, also understanding that it's not me who's going to change your heart. You have to respond. If the Spirit of God is working in you, you will respond. But we also see to get God's people elect, we must proclaim the gospel. That's the only way that it happens. Many people draw, uh, make an error in their, when they come to this conclusion. They say, if, if God has elected some, and this is, I'm going to say, some Calvinist. So some in my, my camp, our camp, They make this erroneous conclusion that if God has elected some to salvation, then they're going to get saved no matter what. So why should we have to share the gospel with them? There are hyper-Calvinists that say, listen, if God has already elected them, his gospel is going to be powerful enough that I don't really need to share That is hyper-sick Calvinism. Unbiblical twisting of Scripture to make it fit. The answer, how do you respond to this? Is because God ordained the means by which his elect get saved. And that means is the preaching and the sharing of the gospel. That is how people get saved. It's not just this mysterious, you breathe in air and... (gasps) I'm saved. It is through the sharing of the gospel, the clear sharing of the gospel, the clear proclaiming of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, that people get saved. In 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, the elect, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Paul suffered all things, all things, all the beatings, all the shipwrecks, all the imprisonments, all the hardships, all the abuse he went through so that God's elect would obtain salvation. The message that we proclaim is the gospel. And the gospel is God's message. It's not man's message. The reality is man would never come up with this message because it takes us out of the equation. Luke repeatedly emphasizes, he, he, he refers to it twice as the word of God, 
twice to the word of the Lord and once to the word of his grace. In other words, the gospel didn't originate with the religiously clever men thinking of how can we, how can we be reconciled with God? How can we be reconciled with God? They weren't sitting around thinking about that. All of the world's religions originate with man. I remember taking a course at Trinity Christian College about world religions. All world religions originate with man or from Satan, and they involve a system of human works, don't they, that supposedly bring us into harmony with God, where the Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, whatever, all these things have one thing in common. They bring glory to man because salvation is by human works or merit. Humanity loves coming up with ways of how do I get right with God. If, if you watch uh, the news feeds, I don't know how many of you kind of, I have, it's called Flipboard on my phone, and uh, I, I just keep, uh, you hit it and it brings you to the news section. You can keep flipping and see what's going on around the world. And I, I have one of them that kind of highlights what is going on in the Muslim world. And there is a yearly time where these men take whips that have little barbs at the end and they just beat themselves. And their backs are just bloodied because why? They are trying to get right with God. All this works and activity. And some of you are going, that is absolutely insane. I would never do that. But yet you do it in your own way. And the world around us is just trying to get things right by what? Activity. If I'm just a good enough person, if I just have enough of these good check marks, I'll be right. I'll be good. And even how do we describe them? Even if they're, they're sinful people and they're, they're apart from God, oh, but... He's a good person. No. Ultimately, before God's eyes, it's not true. And they're even trying to get right with God by activity. The gospel is totally different. It wipes out all the ground for our boasting. It takes away every human work and it attributes salvation to God and God alone who chooses us before the foundation of the world takes you out of the mix. You weren't even this little glimmer, little twinkle in mom and dad's eye when God said, oh, I'll choose you. It was even before the foundation of the world was laid that God said, all room, mine. Took me out of the picture. Before we did even one good work, including choosing him, this is why the doctrine of election is absolutely crucial because it alone destroys human pride john calvin made this application both in his institutes and in other places and in his in a sermon on first uh, timothy called uh, the salvation of all men he says this about the gospel thus we see how profitable this doctrine of election is to us it serves to humble us knowing that our salvation hangs not upon our deserts, neither upon the virtue which God might have found in us, 
but upon the election that was made before we were even born, before we could either before we could do either good or evil. No man can invent such doctrine. No amount of wise professors could come up with a, a really ingenious plan of how getting right with God because it, it pulls out all of our pride. We can't even glory in our own faith because even that is a gift from God. Joel Beakey writes this, the very act of faith by which we receive Christ is an act of utter renunciation of all of our works and righteousness as a condition or ground of salvation. He goes on and cites Horatius Bonner who remarks, faith is not work nor merit, but the cessation of all these and the acceptance in place of them of what has been done, done completely and forever. The gospel comes to us as the word of God, the word of God, and not an invention of man. And this gospel is the message of grace to undeserving sinners. It's the grace of God. It's the word of his grace. So what do we do with people who are bombarded by the law and bombarded by, man, if I just do this and this and this to get right with God, what do we do? We offer the gospel. And the gospel is like water to thirsty souls. The Bible even declares that even the best of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even those who strive to be righteous are filled with pride. They think that they can commend themselves to a holy God which pulls him down and elevates them. When we come to the cross of Christ as guilty sinners and receive what his son did on our behalf, he saves us by his grace and he gets all the glory. You would think that people would welcome such good news, but the fact is many hate it. So what do we do when we proclaim the gospel rightly, correctly, as purely as possible? We should expect division. Deadman goes on to say in his commentary that one of the marks of true evangelism, and this is encouraging, one of the marks of true evangelism is always that is always that those who are affected, I'm sorry, one of the marks of true evangelism is always that those who are being affected by it are divided. 